Hello, and welcome to Inside Medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, practicing physician, and someone very interested in what science can tell us about how to better live our lives. Today's guest is science journalist, Melinda Wenner-Moyer, author of the book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. She's a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and a regular contributor to the New York Times and the Washington Post. She is a faculty member at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Hosting today's conversation is our New York-based pediatrician, Dr. Kelly Fraden. Dr. Fraden and Moyer discuss how to take a scientific approach to parenting, including how lying is a normal part of development, how kids' self-esteem contributes to a long, healthy life, and the importance of discussing topics that make you uncomfortable. Now over to my colleague, Dr. Kelly Fraden. This is Kelly Fraden. I'm one of the pediatricians with Private Medical, and I'm so happy to be here with Melinda Moyer, who's the author of How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. And, uh, you know, I followed Melinda's work for some time because she's a science journalist who knows how to read studies and can incorporate sort of the best practices from evidence-based journals into how we can all be better parents. So I've learned a lot from her and I'm excited to, to dive in. So Melinda, why don't you tell us about yourself and how you started with the idea of this book? So yes, I have been writing about science for, gosh, almost 15 years now as a science journalist. And when I had kids 10 years ago, I realized I had so many questions that I didn't know how to answer. And I realized too that science could be a good way to answer some of those questions. So I started writing a parenting column for Slate that was really essentially me answering my own parenting questions with science. Um, it was really fun. And then as my kids got older, and especially like over the past three or four years, I started thinking more about who my kids were becoming. And this was, of course, with the backdrop of like the Me Too movement and all the allegations coming to light. And I also just felt like there was a lot of bad behavior that I was seeing around me. And I was shocked to find there was actually a ton of research on how different parenting strategies can shape character and values in kids. And a lot of it was counterintuitive. So that was the point at which I said, okay, I think I should write a book. There aren't as many books about what actually compromises a bigger chunk of raising children, which is like the, the older years, maybe like three to 15, when you have this huge amount of sway in how, how your children grow and develop. I'm wondering what if any of the, the content in particular in your book has really helped you to be a better parent. One thing that I feel like I, I experience on a day-to-day -day basis that, that has been helpful is I have, uh, through reading the research and understanding more about kids' brains and how they develop, I feel like I'm a more patient parent. So one thing that I was really surprised to learn you know, the part of the brain that's responsible for impulse control, for rational decision-making, planning, all these things that we think of as, you know, mature behaviors and, and things that also are associated with like, quote unquote, good behavior in kids, that part of the brain does not fully develop until people are 25. So there are all these ways in which, you know, kids might not meet our expectations or might behave in ways that sort of seem sometimes like intentional bad behavior, like they're trying to drive me mad, they're trying to ruin dinner or whatever, where I, I realized, no, actually, my kids just don't have the skills 
a lot of the times to meet my expectations. My expectations are really too high. And I started to recognize that what I had before kind of interpreted as like bad behavior and them, you know, breaking rules on purpose was really just a reflection of the fact that they didn't have the skills that I assumed that they'd had. That's one thing that I really loved reading your book, that it is founded in sort of the developmental truth of like how children develop and how things unfold. Like, for example, that toddlers are supposed to be selfish. They are made to like prioritize their own needs and they don't really have, you know, like the theory of mind to consider others' needs on the same level as their own. So maybe we could talk about uh, lying a little bit because that I think that will interest a lot of folks to hear sort of what you learned about lying and how it's not only a bad thing, like it's a sign that your child's development is progressing. There's actually a lot of research on how lying develops and how it sort of evolves over the course of childhood. But one thing researchers who study lying said to me that I think is really reassuring is that it is totally normal. Every child lies and, you know, they lie for different reasons. And I think we have to recognize that some of the reasons that both kids lie and we lie, they're actually, you know, very culturally acceptable. You know, we have this perception of as like always a bad thing and always being done for some selfish reason. And certainly those kinds of lies exist, but we lie all the time. Lies that are designed to sort of protect other people, for instance, these are things that we as adults are doing all the time and that our kids are noticing in, in ways that I think we may not recognize. So for instance, like, you know, when, when my daughter gets a present from her grandma that she doesn't like, like a pair of socks and she opens it up, you know, of course we'll say something like, well, you know, when you see grandma on the zoom, be sure to tell her how much you love her socks. I know you don't really love them, but it would hurt her feelings if you didn't tell her how much you love them. So tell them, you know, tell her you love them. So, you know, one thing I learned from, from this literature is that kids, when they see adults lie, they, they can recognize it as a lie in ways that we sometimes don't recognize that we're lying. And they also are much more likely to lie if they see adults lying. So I guess there's kind of two takeaways from this. One is we should maybe be thinking of lying as uh, a, a more complex phenomenon sometimes than we realize and understand that it is culturally acceptable and that we might sometimes want to talk to our kids about the different kinds of lies that exist and explain to them that Lying, you know, lying for your own personal gain or to cover up a, a mistake you made is, is really not okay, but that some lies are okay and, and try to sort of explain the difference. Yes, uh, kids definitely uh, sort of emulate their parents' behavior. And I think the phrase is monkey see, monkey do, right? But I'm wondering if you have heard from people who've bought your book, whose children now uh, see the word asshole on the bookshelf. Like, I think it's such a catchy title. There have been so many parenting books with curse words in the title, but then there's also like, you have some content in the book about that as well, right? So how do you think about that? Yes, it's certainly a provocative title. I think the word has some pretty powerful and kind of broad connotations that I thought really captured what I was trying to get at. So like I, when I think of an asshole, <laughs> I think of somebody who is maybe intentionally obnoxious, self-centered, maybe they bully, they might be dishonest, but in selfish ways, and maybe also a racist or sexist. And those were all qualities that I really wanted to dig into to talk about what do we know about the science of how these those particular characteristics develop and what we can do as parents to kind of thwart them from developing. But I I also recognize that there's been some like some misinterpretation with the title, which is 
completely understandable that I'm really not saying like, here's a book on how to raise kids who are never going to break rules or never going to misbehave because I don't think that is possible. And I think kids, you know, have to like test boundaries to learn where they are and break rules to learn, you know, about them. And so much of what we consider good behavior is like social conventions that kids have to learn. What I'm really getting at is like how to raise kids who won't grow up to be adults who are assholes in the way that I kind of explained what that means. But yeah, if kids see this book, and I've certainly heard stories of people who bought my book and said their kids (laughs) saw the title and either laughed or were mortified or were offended. I, you know, I do think, and one of the themes of my book is like to talk to kids about things that maybe you don't think you should talk about. I think we should, it's good to talk to kids about like, what does this mean? Why did I buy it? And and that you can be honest and say, you know, it's really important to me that you grow up to be a kind and compassionate person. So I bought this book to learn more about how to help you do that. And also how to help me, you know, help you do that. Because I think I know a lot about this already, but there's always room for me to learn more. You can get a little growth mindset in there. And yes, there is a bad word in the title. And, you know, it's it's meant to kind of be funny, but basically an asshole is somebody who's not very nice. And, you know, sometimes bad words are okay to use in certain situations, you know, uh, like when you're by yourself or in your room, you know, it's not something you'd want to say at school, but like they have their place sometimes. And and I think the author of this book was, was trying to be funny and also sort of capture a particular meaning and sort of say that, you know, this is a book for, for parents who really care about raising good people who aren't going to grow up to be jerks. And I would say too, that I appreciate it being oriented towards preventing a bad outcome rather than implying that you can parent to perfection because so many parents I speak to, they just want to do everything right because it's so important to them to be a good parent. And so sometimes it's helpful to remember that, that what really matters is not necessarily the achievement, but it's, it's grounding your child in the shared values, which are important to you and your family. But I'm wondering, a lot of times people consult their primary care doctor because they're concerned about optimizing their health. And one of the things adults like to talk to us about is living a long, healthy life. And as a pediatrician, you know, I believe that children who have good nutrition and good sleep and, and good health habits probably are investing in their well-being and will reap the the benefits of that down the line. So I guess I'd be interested to hear what you think science tells us about shaping your children's behaviors, you know, with regards to these things. You know, when I think about like, what do I talk about in my book that really lays the foundation for like a healthy and happy life that might, you know, increase longevity? You know, I really do end up thinking about self-esteem, which is something that I focus on in one of my chapters. And it might seem a little surprising, like what does self-esteem have to do with like being an asshole? And, and But I do think that, you know, if we can foster in our kids a, a feeling of, you know, self-efficacy and self-confidence and self-love, that that can go a long way, both, you know, towards preventing some of the, the ba- behaviors that can hurt kids and, and hurt their bodies. So, if we're really thinking about, you know, what is like one of the most important things we can do as parents, I think making sure that we communicate our unconditional love to our kids is really important. What I learned looking at the research was that there's a lot of ways in which we are well-intentioned, but we sometimes put pressure on our kids to, for instance, like really do well in school, like to get the best grades, to achieve 
basically everything they can achieve because we're worried about their future. We're worried about getting them into college. We're worried about, you know, are they going to be successful? And I think these are really understandable concerns we have. But what I was surprised to learn was that sometimes the ways in which we press our kids to, you know, achieve communicates to them that our love for them is contingent upon how they perform or what grades they get or, you know, what they achieve. And that that is actually really detrimental to self-esteem. I think the more that parents can really just convey to their kids, you know, no matter what you do in school, I will still love you. You know, yes, I want you to do well, but, but I will love you no matter what. Like, it's like the runaway bunny book that I loved reading to my kids, which is like, you can do any of these terrible things and I will still love you with my whole heart. And I think the more that we can just emphasize that in our day-to-day lives, I think there's a real power to that, that ends up having all sorts of related effects throughout their lifetime. If we can just instill that in our kids that, you know, they are loved, they are worthy. And I think it's really at the core of positive mental health is building in this positive self-image of being worthy and being loved and knowing that no matter what happens, you know, when you get fired from your first job or your girlfriend breaks up with you, like you still have this like solid base. I think that that's a really uh, important gift that parents can give their children. You know, the unconditional love from a parent is a really special thing in that regard. And I think it's also a good defense against bullies. And I love that in your book, you mentioned some strategies for like what to do if your child is bullying others and how to know if your child is being bullied. Yes, this is one of those issues that I think parents worry about so, so much. And I think they mostly worry about their kids being bullied and not so much their kids engaging in bullying. But, you know, we we need to, I think, be aware of the possibility that, you know, our kids can act some way at home and be perfectly kind and, and wonderful at home. But but sometimes, you know, in, in school where social situations are complex and all, you know, there's all sorts of dynamics happening that kids can sometimes engage in bullying behaviors. And one of the really surprising things I learned looking at the research is that, you know, there are kids who engage in bullying who don't actually recognize that what they're doing is really hurtful. They lack that theory of mind that you referred to earlier, which is really, you know, that the kids just don't have the ability to put themselves in other people's shoes. And so some kids might engage in what they think is is like harmless teasing, like it's everybody's having fun, I'm just being silly, and not recognize that the other child is actually really, really hurt by it. So I think one of the big things that we can do in terms of helping our kids not engage in bullying is to talk about how our actions affect others. Um, There's a disciplinary technique called induction that I talk about in the book, which is essentially like anytime we are correcting a child's behavior or asking them to do something that we try our best to connect that to other people. Like I think the example I used in my book was, you know, I, when my kids leave Legos all around the floor, which they do all the time, instead of just saying, please pick up your Legos, I will say, please pick up your Legos because otherwise I'm going to step on one and it's really going to hurt me. And so to the degree that we can, you know, connect them and their choices and their actions with others, then we help develop that skill theory of mind, which can reduce the chance that our kids will engage in bullying. I think the anti-bullying work you mentioned, I think it fits really well in helping your child develop emotional literacy. And when you're reading these children's books about these everyday situations, whether it's, you know, like the ladybug girl books or the older school Arthur books we had when we were growing up, that sometimes just taking a moment to identify the feelings of the characters and it, it can be so instructive for the children to kind of enrich their vocabulary and to imagine 
uh, to flex their empathy muscles. I think it, it's a really good technique. I mean, the, the research on that is really compelling that talking about feelings like reading books and, and saying, you know, what do you think this character's feeling right now? And what does that expression on his face mean? Or, and talking about even our own feelings, like having those conversations that build emotional literacy, that's, directly linked with generous behavior and helpful behavior because it helps to develop theory of mind. The more kids, you know, can feel comfortable with the language of emotions, understand what they look like, the better, the the kinder they are, the more generous they are. And the research really supports that. At what age do you think parents should really start talking to their children about these topics? Parents often are scared or hesitant to really like dive into some of these more meaty issues. The science says that there's really no point that's too early. I mean, we obviously need to have age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate conversations. But I'll I'll start with race um, because I think a lot of white parents have this very, you know, well-meaning idea that if they don't talk about race, if they don't talk about skin color, then their kids just won't notice it, won't pay attention to it. They won't become racist. You know, this makes a lot of sense. But what the research suggests is actually kind of the opposite. So kids are like little detectives, again, talking about like what their developmental roles are. One of the things that they do from a very young age, from the time they're babies, is they're looking around and trying to figure out the world, like what what matters, what's important, what are the social categories that matter, for instance. And so they, from a very young age, will see these very salient hierarchies that exist in society. And one of them is a racial hierarchy. And they see that white people in our country have a lot more power and prestige and and money than people of color. And I mean, even if you're living in a mostly white community, you know, they're seeing this, you know, in the media and in movie, you know, in the movies and in books and they probably also notice that there's, you know, segregation by race that happens like in communities and in schools. So they do notice this hierarchy. It also exists with gender. And if we don't help them understand why the hierarchy exists, if we don't explain to them in some way that, you know, racism exists, it's existed for a long time, and it is responsible for this hierarchy you're seeing, then kids will start to make inferences if they aren't given any other information. And the simplest inference they'll make is, well, I guess white people are just better or smarter in some way. So it is important for us to have these conversations. There's so many great books that talk about skin color and race and celebrate differences and whatnot. But also I think a lot has to do with just the way that we respond to our kids when they sometimes bring up these issues. Like maybe they'll be in a grocery store and notice that somebody looks different and say, wow, her skin is so dark. And often because, you know, we're so uncomfortable with talking about race ourselves. We grew up in families that didn't talk about it. We will, you know, shush them or say, oh, that's not nice. You can't say that. Or, or even say something that's like, um, well, it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You know, everybody's the same on the inside or something. And we say it in a kind of, you know, a way that communicates to our kids. This is not a topic that we want them to talk about. This is not something that's like really acceptable for them to notice. And we basically send this message that like race is bad, skin color is bad. It's a negative thing. And so instead we can use those moments to start a conversation and say, yes, 
that that woman does have much darker skin than we do. And isn't that cool? Like the, everybody has different skin colors and you can even talk about why skin color differs in people. You can talk about melanin and the fact that everybody has a different amount of this chemical in their body. And that's what's responsible for skin color and how much you have depends on how much your ancestors had. So instead of kind of pushing away these conversations, when our kids say something or comment on something or see a Black Lives Matter sign and say, what does that mean? Just, you know, welcome the conversation and try to try to stay calm and just explain things in a sort of nonchalant way and, and, you know, talk about the topic in a way that invites your kids to talk to you about it more. And that sort of can be a good way in. I think the other thing that can help parents is to know that it's never going to just be one conversation, because I think we put so much pressure on ourselves to say everything right and to know the right words to use. But in general, these things will come up in a hundred like tiny conversations for children to really absorb them over time. So that kind of takes like the stakes down to a level we can accept more. If I, if I explain something and frame it a way that I realize later, oh, that's not the best way for me to have framed it. I will just bring it up again and say, you know, we were talking about this and I, I think I want to explain something a little differently. I've thought about it and I think maybe there's a better way to talk about it. And yeah, sometimes those mistakes are, are just, again, like another opportunity to keep talking about it. Uh, and I'm guessing about the sexism in particular, I'm wondering how... Now that I have a boy and a girl too, uh, sometimes I have difficulty bringing it up without feeling like I'm introducing the concepts. I think kids, again, are, are noticing things even when we're not aware that they are and they see different types of jobs that men have versus women. I mean, so I don't know, honestly, that you're necessarily going to be introducing this to them. You might just be helping to frame it or give context to explain it, because I think a lot of kids are, are noticing this from a young age. I mean, my own daughter brought it up recently. One day she said, you know, mom, I wish I could change and become a boy. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, well, how do I respond to that? And I, I think I, I responded with a question, which I often do saying, you know, why do you say that? Because I wanted a little more information before I responded. And she said, well, I'd like to be president, but I can't be president if I'm a girl. And this is despite the fact that we've talked about in the past that, you know, women can be president and that there are many women leaders of other countries. And maybe she knew that Hillary Clinton had almost won the election, but our culture is still sending these messages that girls can't do what boys can. Sometimes I do bring it up if I feel like there's something happening in the news or something I want to talk about that's relevant. But a lot of times I'll just comment on the ways in which I see sexism portrayed in movies or books. We read a lot of, you know, old fairy tales and they're so sexist, some of them. And so when we're reading, sometimes I'll pause and say, what do you think about how they just treated that girl or, you know, or what they said to her? And, and I'll use that as a sort of way to, to get into it. I mean, the, the Olympics came on at one point this summer and it was the women's kayaking and the male announcers kept referring to them as girls. And they were, you know, 30 year old women. And we talked about that and said, that's interesting. Do you think they refer to the male kayakers as boys? I don't know. And so I think being tuned in and kind of aware of when those things come up and using them as conversation starters can be really helpful. It certainly also comes up in terms of body image and princess culture. So often you see girls in children's books being valued by how pretty they are, how well-dressed they are, and, and, and those sorts of things. So I think in those ways, it's helpful to bring it up that like, that's not, you know, that's not all I notice about this character on the page is her dress. I notice that she's being brave or she's being a good friend, or I'm seeing other uh, strengths from this child. 
So I guess to to wrap it up, maybe I'm wondering, what do you think is the easiest thing for parents to just like change today and do parenting a little bit better? Okay. I think one of the big themes that comes up, and I think this is pretty simple and easy to remember, but maybe actually doing it is, is a little tricky, but it's just to lean into those kind of difficult, awkward conversations. And this can be in any, in any arena, really. It could be race and gender and sexism, but it, it can, it can be like relationships and it can be feelings. Just like have more conversations, including the, the conversations that you maybe in the past thought, well, my kid isn't ready for this, or my kid doesn't need to hear this, or my kid's too innocent for this, because our kids are getting so many messages from the world that we may not be aware that they're getting. And they might not be the kinds of messages we want them to be getting, but you know, they're getting these messages, they're making observations. And so I really think it helps to put our voices in there as some of the strongest in terms of helping our kids know our values and our perspectives on, on these very tricky things. Sometimes the first person to introduce the concept is the most influential. And I think most parents would rather it be them than their their child's friend at a play date. And some of the statistics are really staggering about how young children are exposed to like inappropriate content or or when children start being exposed to making bad choices with like vaping and things like that. It's, it just goes so fast parenting. So it's always good to be one step ahead. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. I hope everybody will go out and get your book. I think it's a wonderful resource that you've created. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for listening to another interesting episode of Inside Medicine and our guest, Melinda Wenner-Moyer. In just a few weeks, we'll be interviewing my good friend, Dr. Kari Nadeau, the section chief in asthma and allergy in the pulmonary allergy and critical care division at Stanford, and an expert in how climate change, air pollution, and wildfires affect our health.